Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the World Cup in history, how you can explore your own archive and what life was like for ordinary men and women between the years 1921 and 1923 as we go beyond the bullets. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we debated the centenary of the state coming into existence on the 6th of December 1922. What exactly happened 100 years ago and whether it was the creation of a genuinely free state or a failed state. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. But we begin tonight's show with the World Cup and hard to avoid it. Uh, it's been a controversial World Cup uh, because of the hosting in Qatar, all of the various uh, human rights abuses, the controversy over uh, the way it was um, given to Qatar, the fact that it became a Winter World Cup. I don't think there has been the same energy or enthusiasm about it. I think uh, for younger audiences the idea of being able to go out into the the yard afterwards and kick a ball around in the, in the sun uh, is gone and I think that's a big part of it as well but in any case uh, there is a very rich history uh, to discuss and to do that with me I'm delighted to be joined by Dr William Murphy from the DCU School of History and Geography he's the co-founder of Sports History Ireland and the co-editor of two collections on the history of sport and leisure and Will you're very welcome to the show Thanks How are you Patrick are you enjoying it are you watching it all uh, I I have to say, I I thought I would be watching more, but I haven't. I don't know. It hasn't really got going for me, and I think, I think partly the winter thing doesn't suit. In the summer, you know, it's an easier thing to manage your life around. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I suppose we are getting a little bit older as well. I know my six-year-old, seven-year-old nephew is feels like I did in 1982. I think and is. Uh, you know, absolutely, he won't go to sleep every night until his parents tell him, you know, what the score of the last match is and, and all the rest. So I suppose age matters too, doesn't it? <laughs> well, sadly, age age is a factor. Uh, let's talk about the age of the World Cup because uh, it goes all the way back to 1930. So we've got a pre-World uh, War II uh, era of three World Cups, then the post. Uh, how did it come about and how did it, I suppose, evolve from being such a small uh, tournament in those early stages to being this uh, a gigantic uh, uh, occasion and spectacle that it is now. Yeah, well, I suppose there's a sort of pre-story to the first World Cup in the sense that international football really begins in the 1870s and organised football is emerging in the mid-19th century and the first international is England v Scotland in 1872. Uh, and then you start to see structures emerge. So the, um, the International Association Football Board emerged in 1882, which really organised football in these islands here. Um, and the game spread through over the next couple of decades. And then in 1904, FIFA was founded. And FIFA was really based on the continent. Uh, England in particular, but the home nations in general were very reluctant to engage with it. They saw this as their sport and they weren't sure at all that these continentals should be involved in, uh, in, in the organisation of it. Um, so FIFA gradually grew. And I suppose it, it's the 1920s when sports 
when the sport really takes off and you can see at the 1924 and 1928 Olympics that football is a huge attraction uh, and Uruguay wins both those competitions in 1924 and 28 at the Olympics and FIFA is looking a little bit jealously I think at the Olympic Committee having their game and having really successful international competitions with their game so in the mid-20s they start to talk about having what becomes the World Cup uh, and the it's this jealousy, I think, the sense that there's money to be made is there uh, in the mid-20s. But also there's an awareness that at the Olympics only amateur players can play and that the best footballers are already professionals at this point. Um, so the talk in the mid-20s turns into a plan to have a World Cup in 1930 and Uruguay emerges as the host country because, uh, I suppose, of its strength as a football nation at that point. It has a track record with the last two Olympics. Um, it's very anxious to establish itself sort of on the international stage. It's, it's, it's a quite well-to-do country that's prospering at this point. And it's the centenary of the first constitution of Uruguay in 1930, has been in, in 1830. And they want to sort of, it, it seems like we know the way centenaries uh, attract, uh, you know, governments and uh, uh, attract attention. So they, they decide to go for this 1930 and they'll go for the World Cup. And they, they offer to build a stadium uh, and they offer to pay the expenses of the teams who will travel to South America. And that's a big attraction. Um, so um, they build an enormous stadium, the Estadio Centenario, a uh, huge stadium and uh, there's a trophy for this cup which is uh, donated by Jules Rimet who's the president of FIFA at the time the French president of FIFA uh, and there's a big turnout from American countries a, a small enough turnout from European countries France goes partly because Rimet is French and he sort of twists the arms of his own national federation to go the Belgians go because Rimet's deputy president is a Belgian so he twists arms and the Yugoslavs and the Romanians go as well uh, and you know it's, it's, it's a huge occasion in Uruguay uh, and it attracts a lot of attention and in part it attracts a lot of attention for them because they end up in the f well it's, n it's a de facto final uh, the last game is between themselves and Argentina and whoever wins will win the World Cup and you know Argentina are the neighbours across the River Plate and Montevideo uh, is you know you could almost throw a stone from Montevideo to Buenos Aires so a huge Argentinian crowds cross over the river to go to the final on the day uh, and it's extremely tense and so on and Uruguay emerges as the, as, as the victors um, the referee was I think he was Belgian and he you know he was very careful he uh, he insisted the authorities you know had an escort for him to get to the to the port really as soon as the final whistle was blown because he wasn't at all sure you know what would happen uh, if the game went in the wrong way or very good. And Uruguay wins. And there we have the start of Jules Ramey gleaming, still gleaming as the as as the three line song went. Uh, and talk to me then about fascism and football in the 1930s, because, again, there's such huge controversy about Qatar and uh, sports washing and uh, all of the problems with the current World Cup and indeed the last World Cup in Russia. But, you know, this is nothing new with the history of World Cups. No, I mean, 1930s are an era in which states very you know, quickly cotton on to the fact that they can use these mass sport events to project their, their countries and to project particular regimes. So the uh, fascist regimes in Germany and Italy are very keenly aware of the use of sport. Obviously, we were aware of the Berlin Olympics, but uh, Mussolini's Italy is also aware of how it can use sport. In '32, they seek the opportunity to host the 34 World Cup and they're awarded it. And... Uh, you know, the fascists have taken control of the sport of football inside Italy in the late 1920s. The fascist state is really running the football organisation from 1926 and they've established a national league in 1929, Serie A, which is very much about 
emphasizing the nation and the glorification of the nation. So um, they very much promote, they use the tournament to promote, you know, as they see the virtues of fascism, of the fascist state and of Il Duce in particular. Um, they're not just the Jules Rimet a trophy is awarded in 1934, but there's uh, there's uh, another trophy, uh, the Copa del Duce, uh, which is a trophy with you know two footballers, very kind of fascist style footballers, posing in front of you know the fascists, the symbol of the fascist state. Um, so and it's very cleverly marketed, uh, you know, the, the production of modernity that the fascist state is very interested in in Italy, um, and it's obviously crucial to them too that they win. So they're very interested in winning. So um, in, in that regard, they uh, play some Argentinians of of Italian extraction. So they seek them out and put them on the team, and that heavily strengthens the team. Uh, and you know, they 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 go through and and they win. El Duce was must have been tremendously pleased with you know the final, which is really a kind of fascist rally with the crowds shouting Duce Duce and kind of fascist hymns being played and so on before the game. Yeah, so great for Italy and perhaps not so great for uh, the rest of the world. Uh, th- there's a break then with the Second World War. It returns in 1950 and uh, towards the end of the decade you see the emergence of Brazil as this global football superpower and they win three out of the next four between 58 and 1970. Yeah, and I suppose Brazil's uh, emergence really occurs in 1938. You first have a sign of them emerging as a football power. The World Cup was in France in 1938 and Italy again, the kind of fascist state triumphs again in 38. Uh, Brazil played very well in that tournament and they were awarded what was projected to be the 1942 World Cup. But... um, Second World War intervened. So there's no 1942 tournament. So it's 1950 before you have another World Cup. And Uruguay win again. Uh, yeah, and uh, they do indeed. Uh, much to Brazil's disappointment because Brazil had hosted, had, you know, hosted it in 50. And the final game again is, uh, Brazil are in the final game. All they need to do is draw the final game. But in actual fact, they lose to Uruguay and hence lose the World Cup. But the team comes again, as you say, in the late 50s. They're very much... You know, very well organised going into the 1958 World Cup. There's a figure called Hao Havelange who will go on to be a very senior figure in FIFA right through the 1970s, 80s and 90s. Is actually organising Brazil's sort of campaign in 1958. And Pele has emerged who is probably the figure, you know, who is most closely associated with that team through 58, uh, 62 and 70. Um, I suppose a lot of people remember that great Brazil team and a sense of Brazil is fixed from the 1970 World Cup. Uh, which is the first colour television World Cup. And David Goldblatt, who's written a brilliant book about the the history of uh, world football, talks about the sort of chromatic magic of football, a television World Cup in colour. And I suppose people remember the Carlos Alberto goal, the final goal that they got against Italy in the final. And, you know, uh, the sort of stylish football that that team played in 1970. And it's kind of created a, a a problem for them then because there's always this criticism or expectation that they have to live up to that. And even when they they won it in, uh, was it 94, they won it, but they won it on penalties and it was a much more functional side. It definitely seems to uh, be a weight on their shoulders. It, it absolutely is. There's a sense that there's, you, there's uh, at least among some people, that it's not just good enough to win, that there's a Brazilian way of winning. Let's talk about Argentina as well because they'd be an iconic team for people, I suppose, of our generation, you know, that 1986 World Cup, mm. you know, the first one I really remember and, you know, Maradona. But, you know, controversy with them in the in the 1970s and, you know, they won in 1978 as well. But, uh, you know, that was a controversial one because of the dictatorship in Argentina. Johan Cruyff refused to, to travel and to play and, you know, perhaps 
the Netherlands would have won if he had. And uh, so again, you see controversy associated with politics. Absolutely. Um, you know, in the lead up, Argentina were awarded the 1978 World Cup in 1964. And in 64, they were in a period of democracy. But by the time uh, the World Cup comes around in 78, there's a military dictatorship. People will know, I'm sure. Uh, They were known as the Junta. Uh, And they'd taken over in 76. And it was led by a general, uh, Jorge Videla. Very quickly after the Junta came to power, they became very concerned that the World Cup had to be an expression of, you know, the regime and the success of the regime. Uh, and they appointed a man called General Omar Actis to head up a body to try and organise the, the tournament. Um, he was on his way to his first press conference and he was assassinated. Uh, they spent an enormous amount of money, around $700 million, uh, preparing for that World Cup. They very much wanted to project the regime. Um, internally, Videla was speaking to the players about them, you know, in military terms, about them being soldiers of the state. Externally, in the sort of, you know, Orwellian doublespeak, he's talking about this being a World Cup of Peace. Um, Minotti, who was the manager of the team, was of the left and was very concerned that the players, in his conversations with the players, the sense he wanted to say that they were, they were playing for the, for the people. They weren't playing for the military men in the posh seats, but they were playing for the crowd and so on. But definitely, I mean, the regime certainly use that World Cup victory uh, to, to to boost their status. Um, and there's all sorts of talks about potential corruption in the course of the tournament. And there kind of does seem to be a tradition of the teams that play the beautiful football uh, not winning. Now, there are some exceptions, of course, with the famous Pele 1970 team. But, you know, we're thinking of uh, France and the uh, the Platini team, and even, I suppose, Zico's Brazil and uh, uh, Johan Cruyff in 1974, that sometimes the, the romantic team uh, comes up against a more pragmatic team and loses. Absolutely. Well, uh, like you, I'm, uh, you know, 1980s uh, child, I suppose. And the 82 World Cup is the first time I remember becoming engaged. Uh, And that France team of Platini, Tigana, Gires in 82 and 86 were just a glorious football team. Uh, But obviously twice they fell short and very infamously. uh, You know, I I often joke that, you know, I lost my innocence uh, when I aged seven, uh, when I saw the World Cup semi-final between Germany and France in 1982 and uh, France went out after a three-all draw on penalties. But there's a very infamous incident in the 58th minute when uh, Patrick Battiston was running through onto a pass and And the German goalkeeper goalkeeper, Tony Schumacher came out and Battiston lost three teeth, cracked ribs, was carried off the pitch and uh, Schumacher, there wasn't even a free given, you know, Schumacher was certainly not sent off and, and if he had been, it surely would have changed that team and that game and that French team might have gone on to win. Um, I suppose they did at least win a Euros in 86, so they had something. But, you know, the Dutch, as you say, in 74, despite being clearly the best team in the world, probably playing total football, based on that Ajax team that had won three European Cups in a row from 71 to 73, fell short in the final to Germany. It always seems to be Germany. Uh, and... Uh, Hungary to the Hungarian team in 1954 who were clearly regarded as the best team in the world the mighty Magyars who had you know made world headlines by beating England in Wembley in 1953 um, again lost to, to Germany in the final in 1954 in Bern on a day when the rain came down in buckets and buckets and really you know inhibited their capacity to play the sort of beautiful f- football that they played and, and, and the Germans won. 
The Irish part of the story, as I think much more well known, are, are three World Cups. Uh, uh, the penalty shootout in 1990, which is such a great memory for uh, so many of us. Uh, uh, 1994 in the USA and then 2002, which created a new civil war with Saipan. But uh, three different experiences, I suppose, of, of the Irish experience. Yeah, I think completely different experiences. Obviously, the 1990 and 94 were, well, 1990s, you say, certainly this extraordinary sort of mania around the team and that Charlton team they probably had already left their best football behind them and truth be told they probably had played their best football in Euro 88 uh, but by but but 1990 it was the social experience which was 1990 and the collective engagement with the tournament I think which was so extraordinary uh, and I, uh, you know they they made it through as we know to the quarter final which is as far as an Irish team has, has ever gone and obviously famously won that penalty shootout against Romania in the second round but I mean a terrible football match by 94 they had gone further downhill really and you know again struggled struggled their way out of the group after, uh, there was the great night beating Italy uh, with a Houghton goal again um, but struggled out of the group and you know were dispatched by the Dutch in the second round um, But some good <laughs> games there and you know Damien Duff and you know Niall Quinn and there was a certain oh, uh, Robbie Keane like there was a there was an energy and excitement There was absolutely and you know th- that game where they went out they actually played really really well against Spain and I think obviously people, obviously people remember the Robbie Keane goal against Germany uh, and so once the football started I think people engaged with the game and followed the team's progress and there was a sort of a sense of a, a young, there was an interesting young generation of footballers there, I suppose, again, as you say, with Keane and Duff, who had captured people's attention again. It definitely seems to become more, or maybe as looking back on the 1930s and looking back on the 1970s and other periods, maybe it was always the case, but it definitely seems to be a more tainted tournament this time. And I don't know, some of the joy seems to have gone out of it because there are so many human rights issues and there definitely seems to be much more open corruption and it seems to be a money racket. And maybe it was always a money racket, but I don't know, some of some of the, certainly the you talked about innocence, some of the innocence in terms of enjoying it as an overall tournament seems to be gone. I think that's definitely true. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, I think people are watching for good or ill. Okay, well, my thanks to Dr. William Murphy of the DCU School of History and Geography, the co-founder of Sports History Ireland. My thanks to him for joining me tonight for a brilliant discussion about the history of the World Cup. We're going to take a quick break now and when we come back, we'll be exploring your own personal archives. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. This week is Explore Your Archive Week, where you, the public, are invited to discover your past through national and local archives. And I'm delighted to be joined by Neve Nikara, a musician, composer and archivist who's based at the University of Galway. She's the project archivist for their two largest archives, the Conor Nguelga Collection and the Mary Robinson Collection. And she's also the Communications and Campaigns Officer for the Archives and Records Association of Ireland and co-host of the podcast series Archive. Nation. Neve, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Lovely to, lovely to be chatting to you. So talk to me about this campaign and I suppose the focus this week and I suppose the year-long Explore Your Archive campaign. Yes, so essentially this is all about advocacy and outreach and getting the message out to the general public that archives are about everything and for everybody and encouraging encouraging as you put so well yourself in the introduction encouraging people to explore these archives and so what happens is every year there's a, a focus week in November which highlights um, these archives and gets institutions involved 
in that outreach. And so the, there's generally kind of a series of events that various institutions put on. And there's also a social media campaign uh, that people can follow. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> and I suppose, are we talking about visiting your local archive and uh, looking at the things that are being put out on display in terms of stories and photos and manuscripts? Or is it also encouraging people to look maybe in their attics and try and see if there are things there that also might be of interest? It's a bit of both. And of course, the thing about archives is that we traditionally think of them as, as being, you know, the dusty attics or the archivists work, working in the dustiest part of the dustiest libraries. But it's quite a cutting edge profession. A um, lot of new technologies are being used all the time. And what that has allowed us to do in particular, you know, recently with the pandemic is that a lot of institutions have digitized portions of their collections and put them online. So there's a lot of online exhibitions. There's a lot of online webinars as well. For example, uh, the Public Records Office in Northern Ireland have done a series of events where they essentially help people discover their their archive. What's the best way of, of researching? What's the best way of coming into an archive? Um, how do you make the best use of your time? That's part of it. And as you said as well, it's people looking into their own histories. One of the things about archives is that it can cover so many different topics. For example, there are corporate archives, but corporate archives would also have employee records. And sometimes that can be a great source of information for family histories, people trying to trace back, um, you know, their 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 ancestors' stories. Um, and then you have the, the wonderful discoveries that happen in attics and, you know, local archives and institutions all over the country are always uh, happy to, to talk about accepting material. Sometimes it mightn't be suitable or they might tell you where might be a better place to accept that material. If it's subject specific, for example, it might need to go to a particular archive. So, for example, um, two archives very close to my heart are the Irish Traditional Music Archive and the Irish Architectural Archive, and they're both on Marion Square. So they're examples of subject-specific archives. So, yeah, but you'd also have a lot of community archives, and you'd have a lot of communities who are involved in various activities, and they want a record of that kept, and they they would therefore uh, donate their own material after an event or after a campaign. So we've things like the Repeal the Eighth campaign. We had the news that uh, Bernard Lynch, the former priest and... AIDS and LGBTQ activist has donated his papers to the National Library. Um, There is an example of a community that that he fought for, their stories being being kept in his papers and being donated to the National Library. And some other you know, fascinating ones that I looked at, uh, PRONI, the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, holding an International Day of Persons with Disabilities exhibition and uh, there's stuff on LGBT Northern Ireland heritage projects and a new documentary, The Troubles I've Seen and so on, that, that this is all across the island and uh, there's great stuff going on in Galway and Meath and it's all around the country. It's all around the country and I think it can be, the perception can be that, it, that it's quite Dublin-centric or that it's, it's national institutions, but there are lots of, of, of smaller archives all over the country that, um, you know, are representing local voices all the time. You mentioned Galway, for example, the Pan Pan Theatre had their archives um, launched in the University of Galway, where I'm calling from. Um, and also in Galway, the County Council Archives are working on a new publication, which I 
personally can't wait to see. It, it's related to the collection of George Chambers, who was your quintessential English gentleman tourist. And he spent nine years uh, between 1929 and 38 traveling all over Ireland, to particularly to the islands, uh, taking photographs. And so that photographic record is available, but they, they're producing a, a publication using some of those photographs and linking them to essays by archivists in the local areas where those photographs were, were taken to, to give that um, context, which is so important in archives, uh, you know, filling in the gaps and giving the background to something. So that's a wonderful publication there. You mentioned Mead, so they're having a lecture in the library there. Ross Common have just digitized the, the infirmary patient registers dating back to 1857. And that's because the building therein was the infirmary. So they're bringing that to, to the fore. And of course, the military archives had big news. They released their 13th tranche of information of, you know, around 5,000 files from the military service pensions collection. And I think at this point, they now have all of the pension records related to women who applied for a pension, and um, they are now all processed, or at least all that they found. Um, so there's all of these stories from all over the country and from lots of different points in time um, that are being told and that are being made available. And a really wonderful development, thanks to technology in recent years, is that uh, more and more material is being digitised so people can do these wonderful online searches and uh, uh, you can start off your your, your your journey of discovery at home. You can look at uh, the website of the local archive or uh, the archive near you. Uh, you can perhaps uh, look at various records there and then you can uh, make your visit as well. Absolutely. And also, I would encourage people to uh, reach out online to their local archives and the local archivists in advance of coming in, um, because the archivists know the collections the best, and they'll be the ones that will be able to help you and tell you what's available. And if you if you reach out in advance, it means they can make sure there's more material for you, or they can guide you in a different direction, which is equally important. You don't want to waste any time. Um, but yeah, I mean, technology has really come into things. Uh, you, you talked about digitization there, but one of the biggest projects that's been going on over the last while is the virtual treasury, the Beyond 2022 project, um, where they're essentially using technology to virtually recreate our public records office that was blown up. Um, and they're recreating not just the physical building, um, from a you know online virtual point of view, but also all of the records that would have been on the shelves, and they've been they've been doing Trojan work and have been win- winning prizes because of it. Um, but one of the things that that struck me was just this technology that they're using. They're they're now using multi and hyperspectral imaging to try and make out the writing on paper that was recovered from the building after the explosion to find more information that, you know, it wasn't clear to the naked eye. So, yeah, so that there's all of this technology has been used all the time and is making it more accessible to people all the time. And of course, that's part of of the aim of our profession is that this shouldn't be just for a small group of people. This is everybody's story and everybody should be in a position as much as physically and feasibly possible uh, to, to access 
Abs- these archives and their own story. Absolutely. And we did a show, a full show on the uh, the virtual uh, record treasury and beyond 2022 that you'll be able to get on our uh, News Talk app powered by Go Loud or on the News Talk website or wherever you get your podcasts and so on. But it's, I suppose, uh, Neve, uh, an important part of the story is that there's different dimensions to it. It's uh, your own personal story or family story, but then it's also uh, these collections that the various archives are, are bringing to our attention. So there are areas to do with human rights, uh, to do with politics, religion, uh, music, theatre, that it's it's basically all of Irish life and society over the years that's that, that can be on display. Absolutely. Essentially, archives are records and they can be records of very mundane activities, but these mundane activities tell a story and a hundred years later, they become really interesting. Like I, I mentioned the pension collection there in the military archives. Who would think that somebody applying for a pension would be an interesting uh, source of information? Um, and, and, and you talked about politics there. If we look at what's in the news at the moment, there's an archives um, element to all of this. We have people um, fleeing from Ukraine, for example. One of the military tactics often in invasions is also targeting record buildings because that's how you ethnically cleanse a population. That's how you get rid of a population so that you can move in. And so archivists all over the world are doing their best to help archives in the Ukraine protect what information they have, but also these refugees that are fleeing, they're carrying stories with them. And, you know, we have refugees in Ireland now. Their stories really need to be uh, told and preserved as much as we can. And if you think about the Bernard Lynch um, collection that was donated to the National Library there that I mentioned earlier, he himself was working in New York in the 1980s. And it is the Irish immigrant community, the diaspora. It's their stories being told there. So there's always a connection um, and there's always a connection to current day as well. Today's records are tomorrow's archives. Uh, you, You look at the relevance in U.S. politics of the archivist of the United States. And the trouble um, the former president is in for not handing over records. Um, climate change is is a huge part of this. You have whole communities have been displaced because of climate disasters, and their stories need to be preserved. Um, you know, people's identity is very much wrapped up in their their, their cultural um, history and their social history and their own personal records. And so you take somebody's personal record that mightn't seem important by itself but in the bigger picture is part of a very important story and it's it's those stories that archivists are trying to ensure get preserved and then processed and made available. Talk to me about your own involvement with the Irish Traditional Music Archive because I know you're a board member there and I know you've done, uh, you've had a fantastic career uh, yourself uh, uh, winning awards on the on the fiddle and the concertina. I know that you toured with Riverdance as a soloist for I think eight years. That uh, Talk to me about your own connection with traditional music and, and some of your work there. I suppose people, a lot of the time when they think about archivists, they presume that we may have come from the history background. And certainly, traditionally, that would have been the, the path. But the profession has opened up a lot and is a lot more accessible. Um, it's not just the archives that are more accessible, but the profession itself. And so I came, as you said, from the world of music. The reason 
that isn't all that surprising, although it may seem so on the surface. The, the music I come from, it's the Irish traditional music that I've grown up playing all my life. And a huge part of what we do is, is handing down this tradition. So if I learn a tune, I need to know who who gave it to me, who played it before me, who might have composed it before me, and then that gets passed on. And that's essentially provenance. So there'll be a lot of parallels between that and the archive. So, Neve, what would you recommend then to our listeners? How to begin if, if people have an interest in this, just to maybe do a search for what's on in their locality, maybe uh, then also search to see maybe areas that they're interested in. What, what should be the first step? Well, I think if anybody ha- is on social media, there's actually a huge um, volume of archives that have social media presence. And these can be very accessible ways into these particular archives and these particular collections. Well, my thanks to Neve Nikara, Communications and Campaigns Officer for the Archives and Records Association of Ireland. Thank you very much, Mila Magos. We'll be back with more Talking History right after the break. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Now, to end the show tonight, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Kira Brannock, who lectures at the University of Limerick, is an Irish Research Council Laureate Awardee and a Fulbright Scholar for this year. And uh, Kira is joining me from New York City. Kira, thanks a million. Yeah, you're very welcome, uh, Patrick. It's lovely to join you this evening. So talk to me about this wonderful series on RTE, Beyond the Bullets, because you're covering the key events of three years, 1921, 1922, 1923. But it's not just looking, you know, it's, it's, it's not what we're used to in this uh, decade of centenaries, the political history. This is the key social history, cultural events, sporting events. It's really what life was like. Yeah, I think that was the, the aim of the series was to... Uh, basically shine a light on how ordinary life prevailed during uh, times of extraordinary violence and uh, political destruction around the country. And we are now going to play a short clip from the documentary series Beyond the Bullets. You don't want what you get And so you sit upon my knee You ask me for a message for the American people regarding the treaty. I can only say that the rights established for Ireland by the Articles of Agreement do give the country a starting point. It puts the future largely in our own hands. And if we are only strong enough and bold enough, we shall go through triumphantly to the end. state of armed insurrection exists, says Sir Neville McCready, General Officer, Commanding-in-Chief. Possession of arms, ammunition or explosives without a permit are among the offences which render civilians liable to capital punishment. And we get a good insight into things like social inequality and you get to see, you know, just how uh, difficult it was for a lot of people with cases of domestic violence, sexual assaults. You know, we see how how tough things uh, and how tough life was for women and children, especially. Absolutely. I think uh, one of the aims of the of the series was to, to show um, the social inequality of life in Ireland in the early uh, uh, 1920s and to, to to adopt an all-island approach as well was really quite important to us to ensure that we hadn't 
uh, forgotten uh, Northern Ireland during those critical years of state formation. Um, but one of the, I think that the, one of the greatest challenges uh, of this series was uh, so few uh, what we might rely on um, in terms of source materials um, and, and statistical studies were gathered from 1919 onwards. So we really were at the mercy of what was in the archives. And of course, the devastating loss in June uh, 1922 in terms of the fire and the PRO. Um, so much data and so many uh, source materials and uh, primary resources were lost to us as historians. So we were very much at the mercy of what survived. And um, thankfully, and I've used the uh, court records quite a lot myself, uh, court records survived for those years. So there is an inkling and uh, of the, the, the types of uh, violence, that, of what we might call ordinary violence, that prevailed during the time also. Um, there is uh, a lot of evidence of uh, domestic and um, just general violence um, in um, Irish towns and cities. And um, of course, we must remember that this is just, uh, I think, uh, the, the surface of the level of violence that there was because um, for domestic violence cases and for sexual assault cases, as we, as we know, very few cases are reported. And uh, what we see in the court records is a fraction of the level of violence that there was. And, you know, we tend to just think of these years in terms of the War of Independence and the Civil War. And we kind of, you know, maybe have this uh, impression that that's all that people were doing and that's all what people were thinking about and talking about. But as the series shows and as your work shows, you know, life was going on in in very different ways and in normal ways in terms of like things like sporting events, uh, the Dublin Horse Show at the RDS in the summer of 1922, you know, football matches, rugby games, you know, Gaelic and hurling. Gaelic football and hurling, you know, that uh, in many ways it was business as usual. For sure. Well, it wasn't quite business as usual. I mean, there was some disruption in terms of uh, sporting activity and um, we relied quite a lot on the newspapers. And of course, Paul Rouse has written extensively on um, the um, disruption to uh, GA matches and delayed uh, finals that took place in, say, 1922 in, in terms of catch-up for um, uh, several matches that couldn't be played in previous years. And there's also evidence of quite a lot of um, other sports like athletics, um, whereby um, teams from Cork couldn't travel to Dublin. And of course, as well with the um, Football Association split, um, you see some um, dissension in the ranks with regards to how Belfast and Dublin um, uh, split effectively. Um, uh, in rugby, um, of course, as we know, it's an all-island team. And um, and it's interesting to see the coverage of things like um, the, the four and then the five nations um, in, in the newspapers. Um, as well as that, we have the, the advent of um, film. So there was quite a lot of film available on um, uh, British Pathé. Um, so as you said, Patrick, um, there's quite a lot of ordinary life going on and, um, and, and the year is punctuated as it is now by sporting events. And um, it's, 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 it's interesting to see that. And of course, the back to school adverts or the, 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 the adverts for January sales and summer sales um, are really quite uh, pronounced in the newspapers. Um, and as well, um, you can see quite a lot of um, uh, labour activity of um, organised strikes. People were very, very poor in the 1920s. And, and that is something that we, we tried to um, express in this series. But even in very poor households, there was time and space for, you know, creating happiness 
And we also looked at things like, um, you know, the rise of Charlie Chaplin as a star, um, um, uh, as a global star in terms of his tramp character. And um, and also things like, um, you know, the million pound, uh, the million dollar gate um, with Jack Dempsey in New York. These were global events. And it, it's interesting um, to see how Ireland was uh, picking up these these major um, global events in the newspapers and in general coverage. Yeah, that is fascinating about the newspaper coverage that you could kind of maybe understand the interest in in Jack Dempsey because that's boxing and that would be understood by Irish people. But uh, baseball had no uh, tradition here. And yet there's a lot of coverage of what Babe Ruth was doing uh, in the United States. So international sports and American sports are being covered as well. Oh, without question. And uh, and I, th- I think it's because of, of the way newspapers operate with regards to syndicated content. Um, but there would have been, because of, um, the, the, you know, um, uh, I suppose, letters home and um, and uh, transnational um, uh, communications, there would have been a wider cognizance of these things. And uh, it's very interesting, actually, uh, because Babe Ruth had a very uh, decorated and colourful uh, personal life. And people took a great interest in that, and and, and of course, interest because he he hung out with, uh, you know, the great and the good of Hollywood, and um, he was a bit of a, uh, of a of a playboy in 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 many respects in his in his personal life. Um, so he would have been at uh, kind of big parties and um, was involved in several court cases, as indeed was Jack Dempsey. So um, it's 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 because of the personas involved. Um, and, you know, it's interesting as well, because um, for, for different reasons, uh, Count John McCormack would have been in the newspapers, uh, uh, both nationally and internationally, because he he, too, is part of um, what we might term a kind of an elite fleet of um, kind of global um, uh, paparazzi interest, really. And what you were able to do then is you and the producers were able to put some of the music from the from the from the period uh, into the into the programs as well, the, some of the jazz and some of the other tunes, so that you're getting a sense of what people were hearing at the time as well. Yeah, it's it's fabulous stuff, and I can take very little credit for that. It's the team at Indie Picks who uh, who set out the the score, and it was fantastic to work with uh, Connor. Um, uh, Maloney and uh, Declan Jones and of course um, uh, Paula Williams who is a superb um, uh, producer and um, uh, they did a huge amount of work in terms of sourcing um, the the various different um, uh, songs that would have um, I I suppose been the the soundtrack to the early 1920s. Uh, What was very interesting to me um, was um, you know, the threat of jazz. And of course, Aoife Varnock has been uh, running a podcast on the threat of, you know, the foreign um, uh, influences of um, music and um, and a very different literature and, and, and indeed film in the 1920s. Um, so it's, it's very, very interesting to me and, um, you know, how jazz music um, comes to Ireland at the time. And why do you think there was such concern about film? Uh, and, you know, it discusses the Censorship of Films Act in 1923. Was it because some of these Hollywood celebrities and stars were getting involved in, in various scandals and there were murder oh, cases yeah. and so on? Or, or was it the content of the films as well that they were concerned about? I think it was both, a mixture of both. I mean, um, there were a couple of very high profile murder cases um, Fatty Arbuckle was one and, um, you know, the murder of a couple of very famous um, actors and, um, it, it, you know, people implicated, but um, 
and indeed charged with these uh, murders. But eventually, um, like Fatty Arbuckle's career was ruined um, because um, even though he never served any jail time, he never worked in the industry again afterwards. Um, there were several um, high-profile murder cases. But I think as well, it was the threat of the unknown. Um, you know, um, we have the beginning as well of um, uh, talkies at the beginning of the 1920s, um, which which was a threat to, um, I think, um, national identity and cultural formation in Ireland. And, and, our, and Ireland would have been quite conservative, as you well know, in the 1920s. And there were some curfews as well, certainly I think 1921 mm-hmm. and 1922. So what did that Indeed. mean? Did that mean you, had to, you wanted to go to the cinema it had to be during the day? Oh yeah, it was like, uh, you know, cinema at 10 o'clock in the morning type of thing. Well, not quite, but um, it meant that um, um, cinema was big business. It was huge business in the, in, in, in the 1920s. So we see uh, quite a number of uh, very large um, venues uh, being established in the, the bigger cities um, and then, of course, in all the in all the towns, because um, b- people love the cinema. It's very simple, and um, so there is matinees for children. And um, with re- with respect to the curfews, of course, um, you know, cinema showing times um, had to be earlier. So at one point, um, I think we have like you know the the time being moved back to nine p.m. and um, and and of course the the curfew reflects um, daylight savings as well. So it does have an impact on the, the what we might now term the nighttime economy um, in, in, in the uh, affected uh, areas. Now, as you said, you wanted to make sure that you covered the whole island of Ireland and not yes. just the south. Was life very different in the north? Because I suppose you have the and, and well, you have two new states being created and emerging mm-hmm. uh, during this time. Uh, were were things developing in a very different way then, and would the experiences for people have have been very different depending on where they were? I, I think so. I mean, there was lots that we had to obviously edit out, but I I, I was doing some research last year in um, the Ulster. Uh, it was a, it was their sound um, archive, and um, there's accounts of children, um, uh, you know, um, getting sweets from the black and tans and having a great relationship with them, whereas that would have been a very different experience for ch- school children, um, you know, walking to and from school in other parts and disturbed parts of the country, particularly Munster. Um, but the, the, Belfast, the Belfast pogroms um, would have been, I, I think, a, a very a pronounced feature of life uh, for Catholics. And, and um, of course, it was, it was very much a sectar- sectarian affair. Um, so that would have been um, ongoing, actually, uh, throughout the early 1920s. So it definitely, um, it's a regionalised experience as to whether or not the violence had an impact on um, on ordinary life. What surprised you the most researching and working on the programmes? Um, what surprised me the most? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, I, I won't say I was surprised uh, by anything. There, there are no ta-da moments in history, Patrick, um, but... Um, I think that um, there, there was probably more there than I realised in terms of source material. And uh, for me, it was a, a great experience to work with um, IndiePix um, at, and in all aspects of the production from the, you know, from the, the I wasn't involved in the ideation in terms of the format of the, of the, of the show itself. Uh, but um, I think the experience of working um, from end to end was probably the, the most enduring feature and uh, because I'm, I'm involved, uh, I think, in, in the edits at the end, it, it was a different side of the experience. Because we're all used to being, um, as historians, being from time to time uh, talking heads on, 
on various different um, history documentaries, but this is a very different format. And um, and as much as a, a, a you know an exhibition in a, in a national cultural institution, every single line has to matter, and you have to think very carefully about the text because you won't please everybody, and that's fine too. Um, but um, in terms of the historical source material, um, it was probably working with film because I hadn't done that before. So that was probably uh, the most surprising thing for me, realising that there was more film um, and because um, I would have used photographs quite a lot in the past in, in my own research. Uh, but um, I didn't re- I haven't mined film before. And I suppose that was probably the most um, um, surprising feature of this experience. And it's going to be a six-part series. They can get the first episodes back on the Orshi player. Uh, and it's it's Friday nights, Friday evenings at 8pm. But uh, And it's and it's two, is it two episodes for each of the years? Indeed it is. Um, and there was a challenge in terms of getting the balance right with regards to um, the political and the social history content. Because you can't ignore the political history during this time frame. I mean, it, it does provide the backbone, if you will, to, to the series. Uh, like uh, obviously um, things like um, the, the the truth, the treaty, and uh, the treaty debates are really quite important, and you can't they cannot be ignored. And um, and 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 then what we're what we're what we're seeing is the fallout from these political events um, in, in terms of Irish social life. Um, so um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a, a, a challenging enough uh, series to work on, but I really enjoyed it, and it's an element of public history. Um, that I think that um, most historians enjoy. It's, it's a different, a different challenge for us. Okay, well, it's a wonderful series produced by IndiePix for RTE. Beyond the Bullets, a six-part series, and the series uh, consultant, Professor Kira Brannock of the University of Limerick, and over in New York at the moment as a Fulbright Scholar uh, for the year. Kira, uh, wonderful talking to you. Thanks very much, Patrick. Nice to talk to you too. Okay, well, my thanks, Professor Kira Brannock there. And I'm afraid that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.